I next met with Dr. William O to find out what happened at ASCO in the rapidly evolving world of prostate cancer and also renal cell cancer. And to begin, Dr. O commented on perhaps the most exciting new and yet unapproved agent in prostate cancer, XL184. Well, cabazantinib, and it took me a while to learn how to say <laughs> that. I like XL184. It's easier to say. Yeah, totally is a very exciting drug. Now, this was results of a randomized discontinuation design phase two, and it's gotten a lot of attention, particularly because there seems to be an extremely high response rate, but even more important, the bone scans of many of these patients, a substantial proportion of these patients, actually normalized. And you have to really see some of these bone scans to believe it. Now, people who've been around in this field a while are suspicious of any drug that might, for example, have a radiographic effect that might or might not be an anti-tumor effect. And we are seeing data in this particular abstract that there's a correlation between normalization of bone scans, for instance, and improvement in pain and PSA responses. But it's not 100% correlated, Neil. And that's, at least for now, it's of some concern that whether or not what we're seeing on a bone scan, which we know traditionally in prostate cancer patients has not been a great indicator of disease, particularly of disease response to treatment, that this may or may not be a real effect. That said, I think that this is an exciting drug because it seems to be targeting not just VEGF, this is a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor that not only targets VEGF, but also targets MET. And the theory behind this, the biology behind this, is that the MET pathway may actually be an escape mechanism for VEGF. And so if you block both pathways, that may be leading to the enhanced response that we're seeing with this drug. They did have kind of an interesting waterfall plot in there, which is something I don't remember seeing much in prostate cancer studies. But if I read this correctly, it looks like most of these patients had tumor shrinkage. Yeah, there's a few interesting things about this study. The randomized discontinuation design is one that is a kind of a technical way that they did this trial because they expected that maybe most patients would actually not have shrinkage of their cancer, but just stable disease. And in fact, that's not what they saw. They saw that most of the patients actually had shrinkage of their disease. The other interesting thing that people may not realize is that eligibility for this study was having a measurable soft tissue lesion. And as you know, in prostate cancer, only about a third, maybe to a half of patients will actually have measurable disease. So in this case, is that a different population? I think that'll be a question. But they had a very high response rate to measurable disease. And the waterfall plot, as you say, suggests that the majority of patients actually had a shrinkage of their cancer, but in fact, the actual PR by resist was only 4%. And that suggests, again, that maybe some of the tools we have to measure prostate cancer lesions and response to therapy may be imperfect. So let's talk a little bit about endocrine papers and actually driving into ASCO in front of the exhibit center, there was this gigantic poster about abiraterone. Before getting to that, there was a paper 4531 looking at, I don't know if it's related or not, you can explain it, TAC 700. Right. That was actually the biggest banner I've ever seen at ASCO. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who rolled that one up. TAC 700 is a CYP17 inhibitor. These drugs, like abiraterone acetate, block the adrenal conversion of cholesterol into the sex steroids in the adrenal gland. And one of the most interesting biological things we've learned over the past three or four years now is that there's two sources of adrenal androgen in a castrated man. One is the adrenal gland itself, but the other may be the tumor itself. And what that's made people think is that targeting the adrenal pathway with adrenal steroid inhibitors may actually have a beneficial effect. And that's been proven with abiraterone acetate. TAC-700 
is an alternative CYP17 inhibitor. And this study was an update of the phase 1-2 study of TAC700 multicenter and showed basically a comparable type of activity. The drug was well-tolerated. It had the type of side effects we've seen with this class of drugs, which include excess cortisol. And in fact, two of the dose levels included prednisone and two excluded prednisone because we know that abiraterone acetate has to be given with prednisone in order to prevent those hypercortisol type effects. And we know as oncologists, we don't like to give long-term prednisone. In fact, long-term prednisone tends to be the bane of many patients' existence if they're responding to the primary hormone treatment. So I think they tried to see if they could get rid of the prednisone, but it didn't look in this exploratory phase one, two study that the non-prednisone-containing arms were as active as the higher-dose TAC700 treatment with prednisone. So I think, in general, this is a comparable type of drug. I think, like with a lot of new drug development where we are not quite sure in the preclinical or clinical realm whether one may be better than the other, I think with a lot of TKIs, for example, we're seeing that they have the same target, but they have very different types of side effects and efficacy measures. So it may be that alternative ways of blocking this pathway may be valuable. Yeah, I was just reflecting back in breast cancer. I think when we used AIs initially, I think it was aminoglutethamide, we used steroids. Yes, that's right. And with ketoconazole, which of course was the precursor for the most part in prostate cancer, we always used steroids because of concerns about primarily about adrenal insufficiency. But it may be that we were also blocking not just CYP17, but multiple other enzymes in the adrenal pathway. And many patients developed uh, kind of clinical or subclinical symptoms of adrenal insufficiency. So how about abiraterone? Howard Shear presented some data. Can you talk about what he presented and where things are with this agent? Well, as most people in the audience may know, abiraterone acetate was actually approved this spring by the FDA for treatment of patients who were previously treated with docetaxel. And that was based on data that's been presented first at ESMO in the fall and updated at this meeting by Dr. Scher, looking at survival benefit. And in fact, Dr. Scher presented some updated survival in his abstract, which was really primarily around whether or not we could use CTCs or circulating tumor cells as a surrogate for survival. But in the midst of showing some of his CTC data, he did show an updated survival curve, which basically suggested that the survival difference was robust and persistent with abiraterone acetate plus steroids versus steroids alone. So I think that the key issue with abiraterone from a therapeutic point of view is that it can only be used after docetaxel because this study was given after docetaxel. There is another ongoing study looking at the use of a drug like abiraterone pre-chemotherapy. And that's more rationally where most of us would use a hormonal treatment like this. But given that this drug is $5,000 a month and that the FDA label says that you have to have had docetaxel, it's been hard for us to consider using abiraterone pre-chemotherapy at this juncture until the data is actually available although I would expect that it may have activity in that setting. This abstract really primarily addressed the question of whether CTCs using the platform from Veridex measuring the actual number of circulating tumor cells in the blood could be a surrogate for survival and thus accelerate drug development. And basically it was a fairly a complex presentation and what I didn't come away from it thinking that we actually had an answer to this. In the end, the most important predictors of benefit from abiraterone acetate were, in fact, a CTC conversion, but also LDH. So we're probably not going to get a single test, whether it's a circulating tumor cell test or any other single test that's going to substitute for survival by itself, but perhaps we'll get a panel of tests 
that may ultimately be a good surrogate in the future in prostate cancer. There was another oral presentation, abiraterone, by Chris Logothetis. Maybe you want to comment on that. It looked at symptoms. Yeah, so Chris's abstract really looked, as you said, at pain and skeletal-related events. And I actually, I thought this was a fairly compelling abstract because it really looked at not just survival, but whether or not we were having an impact on the patient's quality of life. As everyone in the audience knows, these patients really suffer from pain and SREs. And this study looked at the pain endpoints as a secondary endpoint. And what they basically found was that the patients were palliated very effectively, more effectively with abiraterone, acetate, and prednisone compared to placebo and prednisone. So for example, if they looked at something like pain intensity palliation, it was 44% in the abiraterone group versus 27% in the prednisone group. And not only did they get more palliation, they sustained the palliation longer, and it was really over the entire period of the treatment. So what it suggests is that this is not just a drug that keeps men alive longer, which by itself may be important, but they're basically having less pain and fewer skeletal events during the entire time period. So I think it really strengthens the idea that, first, that the androgen receptor pathway is still important in castration-resistant prostate cancer, but that this drug is really helping the men to feel better and have fewer bad outcomes related to pain and fracture. Let's talk about bone-directed treatment in the paper by Shore looking at denosumab. Well, denosumab, as many are probably already using it, was tested head-to-head against zoledronic acid in patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer. And really the question was, does it decrease skeletal-related events? And indeed, there was a 19% decrease in skeletal-related events, and that study's been reported, and denosumab has been approved for this use. So the SHORE paper was really a subgroup analysis looking at whether two different factors at baseline, in fact, mattered with regard to this SRE benefit, and that was whether or not the patient had a prior SRE or whether they had pain at baseline. And in fact, in this subgroup analysis, both whether or not you had prior SREs or whether or not you had baseline pain, there was a preserved benefit with regard to the primary endpoint. And it really suggests that perhaps drugs like these continue to have benefit over time. And certainly, zoledronic acid also has a similar benefit, but denosumab appears to be more potent in being able to prevent an SRE. And basically, whether you have pain or not, or whether you had a prior SRE or not, denosumab was superior to zoledronic acid. So I'm curious about your take on abstract 4514, looking at something we've seen a lot of data on in the last couple of years, intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation. So the intermittent hormonal therapy story, I think, is now with almost eight or nine randomized trials, primarily from Canada and Europe, although the largest American study hasn't been reported yet, have all basically suggested that whether you have metastatic disease or in this study, the Canadian study, whether you have a rising PSA, that intermittent androgen deprivation therapy is basically equivalent. Now, what was interesting about this study is that although the overall survival was equivalent between intermittent and continuous hormonal therapy, what people died of was different between the arms. So interestingly, intermittent patients died more often of prostate cancer, and continuous patients died more often of other causes. And it suggests that maybe, as we've learned from recent studies, that hormonal therapy has some cardiovascular and other perhaps unknown risks that may accelerate mortality. But when you balance it all out, basically intermittent probably is associated with less effects on quality of life. And actually, they looked at how much total LHRH agonist the patients received, and it was only a third of the dose in the patients on the intermittent arm. So in an era of kind of cost containment, that's a significant difference in LHRH use. So I think 
the idea of using intermittent hormones and rising PSA makes a lot of sense, and that's kind of become my standard of care. The other thing I would recommend is that people look at the regimen that they used. It was basically eight months of induction, followed by waiting for the PSA to rise to a point of 10 before they resumed hormones, and it may be useful to adapt this type of approach. When you think about intermittent therapy, do you kind of think about the fact that you're going to be reducing the use of treatment by, you know, as you said, you know, maybe two thirds, but how much of the time are these people actually castrate endocrinologically? Well, they didn't report on that in this study, but it's a very good point, Neil. And in fact, as you know, older patients take almost as much time to recover off of hormones as they are on them. But in fact, they did do a quality of life component to this, although they only presented a small amount of it in this abstract. But for example, hot flashes were clearly superior in the men on intermittent. So from a quality of life perspective, I do think that they have some period of time when they have a kind of a normal or maybe it's subnormal, but enough to make them feel better levels of testosterone. And for that reason alone, as long as you're not compromising survival, I think that you could justify giving your patients a break. So I think the idea that continuous is the absolute standard of care, I think, is now breaking apart. And I think you can offer continuous androgen deprivation, but I think intermittent, certainly in the rising PSA population, is becoming a reasonable alternative. Let's talk a little bit about renal cell cancer. And there are three papers presented on axitinib, Brian Reaney, David Chella, and Bob Mozer. Can you comment on that? Sure. Well, as many of you know or remember, there was some very exciting data presented several years ago about axitinib, which was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targeted VEGF. It seemed in early phase two studies to be as active and maybe even a little more active than sunitinib and well-tolerated, maybe a little better tolerated than sunitinib. And while sunitinib was being developed, because it was the same company, axitinib was kind of put on hold. Although the Mozart abstract, which I'll start with, was a long-term five-year update on that original phase two that got people very excited. And basically, even five years later, about 20% of these patients were still alive, which which is fairly impressive. The median overall survival was about 30 months. So it was that early data that was updated in Dr. Mozart's abstract that led to a randomized study, the AXIS trial, which was axitinib versus serafinib in the second line after a failure of first-line therapy for metastatic renal cell cancer. And this was a big study that was an oral presentation at ASCO and certainly got a lot of people's interest. It was about 720 patients who were randomized to either serafinib or axitinib. Roughly about half of the patients had received prior sunitinib therapy, and about a quarter had received prior treatment with cytokines, and a smattering of patients received other treatments. And basically, the primary endpoint of this study was PFS, not overall survival, but progression-free survival, and it was significantly better in the axitinib arm. It was 6.7 months versus 4.7 months with serafinib. And that was highly statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.66. And it was actually looked at in subgroups. The patients who received only prior cytokines did better in general. And the men or women who received prior sunitinib, also statistically different, but a more modest difference in PFS. It was 4.8 months versus 3.4 months. But the hazard ratio was 0.74. The other interesting thing about this drug, axitinib, and it was really pointed out in both the Rini and Sela abstracts, was that it appears to be a better tolerated TKI than maybe sunitinib, for example. 
And the data that was presented in this regard really related to things like dose interruptions, the amount of dose intensity and discontinuations related to treatment-related adverse events. So serafinib, we tend to have this idea, Neil, that serafinib is a better tolerated TKI, for example, compared to sunitinib. And I think many people in the community like serafinib for that reason. They think that maybe sunitinib might have some increased toxicity. And I would say subjectively, I think that that's not an inaccurate assessment. However, exitinib, although it's clearly more active than serafinib and maybe as active as sunitinib, actually has a tolerability profile that's similar to serafinib. The side effect profile is similar, things like diarrhea and hypertension, but in general, it seems to be comparable to serafinib, maybe even a little bit better in some areas. And the quality of life study that Sela presented basically confirmed this. The patients seemed to tolerate serafinib and exitinib equally well, even though exitinib was associated with more potent VEGF inhibition as measured by a, an improved progression-free survival. Yeah, that kind of surprised me because I had before this, I sort of had this concept, you know, it was a more potent VEGF inhibitor, more hypertension, you know, maybe more difficult to give. And yet that's not really what they showed here. Yeah, I actually think that that is the most interesting part of this. And we talked earlier about how there may be in most of these targeted therapies, more than one drug in the same class, but they turn out to behave very differently. We know, for example, that serafinib has always been associated with a relatively modest response rate. Exitinib, if you look at the measurable response rate, is actually more similar to sunitinib. The partial response rate, for example, in the study with exitinib was 19.4%. And what that really suggests, I think, is that it's a fairly potent inhibitor of VEGF, but whatever it is that's causing the hand-foot syndrome or the hypertension seems to be different with different TKIs. So I think the bottom line message of this study is that there is another TKI available. It seems to be comparable or maybe even better in some areas in terms of side effects compared to serafinib, but clearly better than serafinib as a second-line treatment in patients pretreated with first-line drugs, including cytokines or tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There was a small number of patients on this study who had prior mTOR inhibitors, but it's not enough to really know what the response of this drug would be after mTOR inhibition. And I guess we should add that the 19.4% partial response rate for exitinib was compared to 9.4 for serafinib. Is this drug likely to become available? I can't see how it wouldn't. I think the predicament I think that the FDA has is that if they look at a very large randomized trial like this, this drug clearly is better than one of the standards of care in the second-line setting, which is serafinib. Now, this drug wasn't compared, exitinib wasn't compared to an mTOR inhibitor like Averilimus, which is also approved in the second-line setting, but I think that it's another option available for our patients. And only time will tell, I think, about the sequencing. You know, we talked about sequencing of prostate cancer drugs. The difference between prostate cancer and renal cancer is that the mechanism of action of many of our prostate cancer drugs are very different. There's the bone targeting, there's androgen receptor targeting, there's cytotoxic chemotherapy, there's immune therapy. So far in renal cancer, there's basically been two mechanisms of action, well, two targeted therapy mechanisms of action. That's VEGF and mTOR. And of course, the immune pathway, which is primarily IL-2 at this point. And there's a lot of drugs in those two pathways, in the VEGF and mTOR pathway. And what we don't have a good sense of yet is whether there's really an optimal sequence. For example, should a TKI follow a TKI or should you change the order so that an mTOR inhibitor comes in between? Those are questions that I think more clinical trials will be needed to tell us if there's an optimal approach. 
How about the two papers on bevacizumab and renal cell? 4547, the Bevlin trial looking at Bevin low-dose interferon, and 4548, a phase 1-2 study of Bevin, an mTOR inhibitor. So as many people know, bevacizumab plus interferon was approved based on the Avorin trial, which compared that combination to interferon alone and found that it was significant in terms of delaying progression-free survival. And bevacizumab, of course, is an antibody that targets the VEGF ligand, and it has a slightly different side effect profile. It's IV. Obviously, all the oncologists in the audience have a lot of experience giving it. And the idea behind this first study, this so-called Bevlin study, really was whether or not by decreasing the dose of interferon, you could make the treatment more tolerable because interferon is a pretty lousy drug, as many of you know, and difficult to give. And the short answer is, it is. It's easier to give. And this was a phase two study, non-comparative, that basically suggested that if you lower the dose of interferon, it makes the combination more tolerable. And I guess the Avorin study had tried to look at that also in patients who had the interferon dose reduced. Yeah, I think they did. And they did a little bit of post-hoc comparison in this study where they tried to put the some of the Avorin data next to some of the data from this Bevlin study. And I think that Basically, the combination remains active, and it's clearly more tolerated, but the question of whether or not interferon plus bevacizumab is a comparable standard of care, let's say, to first-line sunitinib or pazopinib or temsorolimus, I think the problem is we don't have good comparative data, and this is a non-randomized trial. The other paper was abstract 4548. Yeah, so that study combined temsorolimus with bevacizumab, and there was another additional abstract that also combined temsorolimus with tevacidinib, which was the whole idea here is we talked about sequencing. There's two things oncologists do, right, Neil? We first put things in order and we see which order works the best with the new drugs that we have. And the other thing we do is we combine them. And if you're really clever, you come up with a really great acronym for your new regimen. And in this situation, the idea really is concurrently blocking the mTOR pathway and the VEGF pathway valuable, either using the VEGF antibody bevacizumab or using a new TKI, in this case, tevacinib. And what I would say is these were primarily dose-finding studies, and these regimens are active, although it's unclear to what extent combining them is really synergistic. They had similar response rates to some of the studies of single-agent activity, but they're clearly more toxic. When you add mTOR inhibitors to VEGF inhibitors, they can be toxic, and some of the early combinations of temsorolimus with, for example, sunitinib were really not possible to combine safely. So I'm not sure whether the signals that we're seeing with these combinations are really dramatic enough to say that we'll see in the near future definite combinations of mTOR inhibitors and VEGF inhibitors. I think the real issue is that a lot of these drugs, even as single agents, continue to have some significant side effects. And I think we'll have to wait and see if there are really enough activity in these combination phase twos to go forward in a phase three. I guess the one thing that maybe is a caveat is the question of toxicity in terms of combinations. And if I remember correctly, I think bevacizumab and I think it was sunitinib had a lot of toxicity, but it seems like an mTOR inhibitor and a VEGF inhibitor seems to be okay. Yeah, I think that's right. So yeah, in that study, when you try to do two ways of blocking VEGF, that study led to very significant toxicity, including I think they saw some TTP, and it was really quite toxic, and they abandoned that approach. I think mTOR inhibition and VEGF inhibition has more rationale in terms of biology. I think that the bottom line with all of these drugs 
always comes down to whether the population that we're treating will tolerate it in real life. And I think you're right. These combinations only incrementally had more toxicity. And I think that if the signal of activity, whether it's response rate by measurable disease or time to progression is enough to warrant a randomized trial, I think we will see combinations where patients will be randomized to doublets versus singlets.